My name is Michael Kuehl, and I'm Roger Bell West, and this is Improvised Radio Theatre with Dice. Um, the What number is this? Sixth? Sixth. The sixth in the series. We've reached the merry month of May. Spring has finally reached England, for those of you who aren't here. And this, we have another potpourri of uh, subjects we want to touch, some of them in response to your calls. In fact, the first one is um, in response to a, a letter from one of our correspondents. Owen Smith asks, have you considered an episode targeted at players, e.g. how to make your character more than what's on the character sheet? Well, we've thought about it. Um, both of us, I think, tend to GM more than we tend to play. This is a great burden. And certainly when I'm not I'm preparing for a game, when I'm thinking about a game, I'm, I'm generally putting more effort into the ones I run than into the ones I play. So I thought I'd turn this around a bit and look at it from a GM's perspective. Sorry, Owen. There are some players whom I will specifically try to get into my games because I enjoy the game more if they're about and the other players seem to enjoy the game more if they're about. So, from that perspective, what, what is good about those players? What would I try to encourage people to do to become a player that I, I at least think improves the game for everybody? I, in contrast, uh, most of my gaming is with two uh, fixed groups who've been together for years. So... Though we pick up people from time to time, I'm not actively recruiting. But I do have habits I try to encourage in my players, and players I appreciate um, for what they do and what they bring to the game. So that's where I'm going to be coming. Yeah, mo most of my gaming is in fixed groups as well. It's just if, if I start off start an extra project, I will think, OK, who do I want to invite to this? And that se seems to be a way of working out for myself, whom do I think is a good player. Yeah. Uh, I should say, I, I am assuming a certain level of competence among the players to start with. I mean, you don't want people who are going to interrupt the session to chat about the TV programme they saw last night. You want players who are going to keep player and character knowledge at least nominally separate. But that, that I think, is the sort of thing that most players can do these days, at least the ones I meet. It's not an unusual thing to be able to do that, so I, I'm going to assume that. Something I would look for that is, isn't a universal thing. Play, players who get involved, they will tell me what they want to find out more about, what the characters would like to do, and this helps me get some idea of where where, where the adventures should be pointed in the future. Uh, quite often, out of game, they will tell me, you know, the, this particular person would is interested in that, some obscure bit of history, or his own personal history, or magical research, or whatever. And by the time they turn up for a session, they've, they've reminded themselves of what happened last time. Um, they've quite possibly got the beginnings of a plan as to what to do next. Basically, they, they keep thinking about the world even though it's not necessarily part of the game. Not constantly, but at least they've given it some thought. They haven't just turned off at the end of the one session way, and turned off at the next one. One way you could describe it is those are the players who think about it from the GM's point of view. From, not consistently, from time to time, but are willing to look at the GM's problems and give the GM notice in advance of mm. what they're going to, what problem they're going to cause, cause them next. Perhaps, yeah. I think it's not, not just that they're looking at it from the GM's point of view, though certainly I'd say quite a lot of the good players are players who have GM'd themselves. It can be as little as this character is becoming a person, and therefore this person has particular goals which aren't necessarily get more treasure and uh, level up. Yeah. Uh, particular people who are interesting, there are particular places that they're getting an interest in. Yeah. Basically, the, the, the sort of personal goals that an actual real person would have... Mm. And just just as with any fictional character, as they start to come to life, they get more interesting. Yeah. The other thing that uh, I tend to look out for, which I will admit may, may be an aspect of the sort of system I choose to run, is that they do tend to know the details and trade-offs of the rules that their characters use. Uh, very often this, this is the mechanically crunchy stuff like spellcasting or combat, something mm -hmm. their character specialises in. But this means I can concentrate on running the game rather than having to lay out all their options. And it, it's their turn in a fight, they've already thought about what they want to do, they can say, right... I'm going to aim this round and then I'm going to shoot him in the head next round, or I'm going to do a defensive attack or whatever. They, they, they know what the game options are. I'm, I'm not convinced about this. I, I do treasure players who, who, who know the rules and have invested in them, but I'm not going to refuse a player whose focus is purely on the situation in the game world and imagining it and making it real. I have a, a, a player I'm very fond of, Hello Graham, who is deeply proud of the fact he's won contests of, of, of role-playing, which is a really stupid idea anyway, at Gen Cons, but has won prizes at, at Gen Cons in games that he knows nothing about. 
he's just read the, the, the rules brief and the situation and turned to the GM every time and said, what do I roll now? I want to do this. What do I, what do I roll now? What do I... And he's not going to worry about, in that sort of situation, he's not going to, actually in any sort of situation, he's not going to worry about what are the odds. This is what my character would do. What dice do I roll? Yeah, that's not... Yeah, it's not a disqualifying thing, but given given two otherwise equal players, I, I would probably favour the one who has taken a bit of time to realise, okay, these are my basic options. Hmm. Yeah, obviously nobody, nobody's going to memorise all the rules. Goodness knows, I, every time they, it gets into a grappling fight, I start looking things up. Oh, oh God, yes. There is something about grappling systems, but it's good to be aware that, yes, okay, in this game I can I have grades of... Uh, very aggressive attack versus very conservative attack and going all the way down to completely defensive stance, for example. Yeah. And th those two together make it sound as what, though what I'm after is basically engagement, and I think that's true to some extent. Oh, yeah. And I, I do like characterization. Uh, I just don't think it's the only virtue, and I think a good player needs to be able to step back and let, let somebody else um, be in the spotlight. I think that comes under the heading of, what, of something I call, well, politeness. There is inter, inter player and player GM interactions um i haven't played for a, for a while with very young players which is probably um a good thing for my blood pressure and other things but the players i'm with have learned or are learning it's an ongoing process to make allowances and to give other people sufficient time in the spotlight sufficient reward from for turning up each session and and being there and doing their thing we are, we do tend to be a bit prickly sometimes, some of us, and we are mm -hmm. learning to make allowances for the other players. I think, but I think politeness and social awareness, especially among us, amongst us obsessive geeky sorts, is a virtue to be um, deeply encouraged. Yeah, I, I've never met the stereotyped players one hears about who, who simply have no social skills at all. Uh, I'm sure they're out there. I have, I have once played with somebody who was diagnosed as high-end autistic, and that was something of a nightmare. Other social awkwardnesses do still occur, but people, by and large, people are very good about about this. But I'm aware that it's it's a skill and one to be encouraged and noted. And if, if you'd asked me this ten years ago, I'd have said detailed characterization. I still like that. But I think particularly in, in a fast-moving action sort of game, it's perfectly possible to come up with a, with a playable character in a few broad strokes, and that's good enough to start with. Yeah. And it's nice to go into more later, but it'll get things going. Yeah, I don't think in any game you need more than the elevator pitch for the character, the, the, the what you see in the pilot episode. And yes, you can, you will discover, you should discover, whether your game system allows for it or not, you should discover more about the character and their background and what defines them and what made them the way they are. Just as in a TV series, you gradually discover stuff about uh, people's backgrounds, about McCoy's divorce or Scotty's habit of drinking too much, as they become more and more defined and more and more interesting to play and to know about. Yeah, I, I think that's entirely reasonable. As long as you've got the, the skill of putting together a... a fairly broad uh, frame that's not going to restrict your decisions too much later. Hang on, but we're, 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 I think we're drifting slightly we away. Yeah, uh, uh, overall, I, I don't mind a player who's just along for the ride. I, I know a couple of players who will basically just sit there and not really do very much until that sudden moment, which may only happen every two or three sessions, when they do something really amazing. Mm. Yeah, so I, I don't mind that sort of player. I'm probably not going to seek them out, but the ones I am are, are overall the ones, the ones who are getting involved. I think um, one of the things I appreciate most in, in players, and I, I, it would be nice if I did it myself when I'm a player, but I, but I don't, because I suspect I'm one of those players who forgets what's going on and turns up with minimal preparation and um, expects the GM to accommodate my latest inspiration, which just came to me on, on the spur of the moment. So do as I say, dear listeners, not as I do. I appreciate the ones who make the GM's life easier. I have one player who, um, because of his own terrible memory, helps augment my terrible memory by keeping extensive notes, sometimes not very coherent or very useful notes, but they're there, and they can, they've, they've spurred my memory when I've forgotten what I named a minor NPC five sessions ago or 
precisely what the sequence was in which they discovered fact A, fact B, and fact, fact C. And we can go, go back to the, to the notes. If I were a better GM, I'd do what Roger does and write up um, the next day everything that happened um, whilst it's still relatively fresh in my memory. But I'm not as good at GM in this respect. This is a technique I pinched from Phil Masters. Who, uh, who, who, who all, honour, all honour to Phil. Yeah. One thing that is particularly handy for that is I encourage the players to read it once it's up, and they, they will then correct things, and if they haven't, dis if they haven't argued with something, mm. the write-up becomes the official version of what happened. Uh -huh. I, um, I found running a play by an internet gang where we were posting um, what we did as we wrote it up, very useful for that because basically the the, the live blog of it uh, became the uh, the formal record and I could transfer it very quickly. And one of these days I'll probably try and do that again. In the extreme case, uh, the World War Two campaign that I'm running, uh, the the campaign write up is now longer than many novels. Even the NPC list is is quite substantial. Oh well, but. Uh, at least it gets vaguely consistent. I will say one thing: if um, if you're going to buy snacks, please uh, bear in mind that if you're, if anybody around the table has uh, health restrictions, like your poor diabetic GM, um, bring him something that he can actually eat. <laughs> but yeah, politeness to, to to the GM and the other players, support for the process, and being involved are the ma are the ma are major things. And um, I, I give myself a tick on the politeness most of the time, and a sort of buy on the uh, on the being involved. I've got a terrible memory, and other people's universes, um, ones that I haven't invested my memory in, I've got a terrible memory memory for. Some players will tell you that I have a terrible memory even for my own universes. They will quote the quote the occasion in an Everway game where I made up the name. I think it was. Um, Transcendental Elephant for a player character, which you'd think would be quite memorable, and then forgot it about five minutes later. Mm. So, how do you rate yourself on your own standards, Roger? Aspiring. Yeah. Uh, there's one game I'm playing at the moment where I have actually taken taken over the job of writing up the campaign because the GM didn't feel like doing it mm. and bribed me with character points. Hey, yes, this technique works often. This does mean I had to uh, learn how to write in an approximately 18th century style, but uh, that's just for fun. fun. Sir. Lots of italics, lots of capitalisations. Underlining is good for Victorian. I do a lot of un underlining in a Victorian thing I'm writing at the moment. Great long sentences. But yes, she, she's, one, she's one of the characters who will tell me every so often, hmm, I feel like doing X, which is something I pass on to the GM. Um, some, sometimes something comes of it, sometimes it doesn't. And I, th I think she, 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 her ultimate objective, I think, is to know everything. Yes, and, she's, and, and she's, as, as, a, as a side effect of this, she's probably going to have to invent immortality. Yeah, if she doesn't explode herself or the universe first, I've met this character. <laughs> and my character is having to dance around the fact that I know she's up to something illicit, but my 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 quite pious monk is being ignorant of the fact. It's quite a delicate. We're, we're not in the same game. Oh, we're not on the same game, are we? You've got two <laughs> characters like that. <laughs> all right. Be this as it as it may. We hope that's helpful. Um, we will pass on to something. We we probably ought to talk about about the art of being a play, a player more. But for now, I think we'll wind up this section and go on to something else. had a, uh, an email from Robert Duchesne, who asks, how about the great campaigns? Call of Cthulhu had a ton of them, with masks of Nile Rathatep standing head and shoulders above the others. D&D &D had module series, G1 to G3, D1 to D3, and then Queen of the Demonwed Pits, the Slave Lords series. What are some of the great adventures that made for great games? Well, I certainly have done at least one of, none of the D&D &D stuff, because... Um, I gave up on D&D a long time ago. But I have done Masks of Nile Rathatep. My memory, which is, as I said above, notably confused, I seem to recall there was a sex change when uh, when we were ran it uh, due to somebody getting possessed by an elephant god 
and uh, their soul transferred to another body. But that's about the most coherent thing I can remember about it. I don't remember that showing up in the YSDC recordings of it. I, I actually haven't played most of the uh, classic Cthulhu campaigns because when Cthulhu was coming out, I didn't know people who were running it hmm. uh, or interested in playing. I have, on the other hand, played most of the um, AD&D ones. And I think one of the one of the reasons they're regarded as classics, I mean, yes, they were quite fun anyway, I'm not sure they'd be particularly exciting now, yeah. is they were a common parlance. If you were playing, as most people were, in, in yeah. fair isolation, you you met somebody else who played the, they played the game, quite probably you both played the same module. Yeah. Because there were, what, 20 of them, something like that? Mm. Something of that close order, anyway. And they were what you bought. You'd bought the rules, you'd hung around a game shop, because you were a low, low type, or at least I was. <laughs> and uh, it was the common tongue. It was the shared experience beyond, oh yeah, I've got a 15th level fighter. Yeah. It was also, you know, it's also good a marketing practice for any, um, uh, at least if they were re- released as um, part works, uh, rather than as one big box, the way uh, Maskell and I and the Wrath of Death was done. They were originally that, that that GDQ series was originally seven separate separate uh, modules. Yeah, uh, three in which you're bashing up giants, three in which you're which you're bashing up drow and underground fishmen, and then Queen of the Dim Wimpets at the end. Uh, they were republished. Uh, I think G one to three were combined into one module, and D one to two was combined into another one. They were a bit fatter, but basically it was all there. Um, and and fin- the final version was all seven in one volume. Yeah, I. Play, well, for more of a, a more recent um, serial release, though still ancient by most people's standards, uh, was the Enemy Within campaign for um, the first edition of uh, Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, which mm. I have actually run all the way through using GURPS, which is eccentric of me, I know. <laughs> it's, it's an interesting um, campaign that I've heard of but not played. I also want to throw in... Um, there, there, there's good stuff for... Um, RuneQuest, um, lots of mini-campaigns, and one uh, major campaign for RuneQuest 3, which was uh, the River Voices um, in River of Cradles, um, which I had enormous fun with, um, running, running through it in, um, in when it first came out in the, 80, in, the late, in the 90s, I think. I think one of the problems with all of these is that if you start out doing a great campaign then it's got to be pretty well linear. There has to be a plan from the beginning about where you're aiming for, and you have to make allowances and pretty much drive the players along the path. Normally they're quite willing to be driven, but there's a limited there's a limited amount of branching and changing the topic. Yeah, um, looking at, I think, two moderately extreme examples, uh, the first Slave Lords adventure, you're basically... You're tasked with dealing with the slavers in this particular city, and you beat up lots of people and discover that there are more slavers somewhere else. And so that's not not particularly dirigist, but it, it gives you a pointer, and if, if you've enjoyed beating up one lot of slavers, you might as well go and beat up another lot. On the other hand, the third module in that, because it was originally written as a tournament adventure for a convention, ends with the party meeting the boss slavers and being beaten by them. And in prison, so that in the fourth module they they wake up in, in a volcanic tunnel with no equipment. And if that isn't railroading like nobody's business, I don't know what what is. The uh, in, in terms of the actual raw stats, a, a yeah. party can beat them, though it'll be a hard fight. But for in order for the campaign to progress along its uh, expected yeah. arc, that that has to be forced. I didn't, as I say, I didn't run it with um, with, with with Warhammer Fantasy. Um, Mechanics. I think one of the things with um, with the enemy within is that you have to get the players up to a certain level of fairly extreme competence in order to face the big bad at the end. It's all about. I don't think I'm telling any spoilers here. It's all about the hidden evils of chaos in various places inside the empire. You keep meeting it, keep meeting more, and you keep seeing more examples, and eventually you're going to be um, involved in big historic events and you need to be toughened up for that. It's a series of individual adventures linked by a theme. There's evil in this and chaos in this place. There's evil and chaos in this place. You go from one to one, but it's linked by a 
a series of conceivably um, credible segues one into into another and gradually building towards that climax and you do I suspect when you're doing the uh, the whole thing need to do the whole thing to get the, the players the player characters I beg your pardon tough enough to be there at the end one difficulty of this uh, that I do remember from Mask of Nanathotep if, if it's played as written mm. it's a pretty lethal series of adventures and while, while you may have your initial party yeah. trying to help out their good friend Jackson Elias who's just been horribly murdered there's a limited amount of help you can do for that well yes but uh, after two, two or three uh, of the main adventures you may well find that there's nobody actually there anymore who knew Jackson Elias you've got a b- bunch of ragtags picked up along the way yeah and, uh, and, 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 and part of the cohesion is sort of pulling, yeah. The, the players can obviously bear in mind, yes, this, this is what the campaign is about. It's continuing to mm. deal with this strange stuff. But it, it does, I think, hurt characterization a bit. I wonder that there aren't more of these now. Um, a, it doesn't have to be an enormous uh, span. It does have to be enough to keep people going for a while. I would strongly suspect that Every new game system needs something of this kind, perhaps not as overarching as uh, The Enemy Within or as long-lasting, but something that can point the, you can point the, uh, the players and a, a new players and a, a new GM at and say, here, uh, try going along this path and you'll find out what the, uh, what the system can do and what the system is a, what the game world is about. The last one of these that I remember playing myself was Torg in. Uh, early 90s, I think, mm-hmm. where part one of the adventure was uh, supplied in the boxed set, mm. and you could buy the rest of it as a separate thing later if yeah. you wanted to go on with it. Good marketing, again. But certainly, when I've spoken to other people who've played Torg, it's pretty, it's pretty much universal that, yes, they've played that adventure. They may or may not have gone on to other bits. Mm. And really, in games since then, I haven't met that to the same extent. Possibly, to some extent, because I'm playing GURPS, which doesn't have a standard setting and therefore can't have a standard adventure. Uh, does it uh, would it sell better if the standard if the settings it, it comes with had um, adventures attached to it? I know Steve Jackson games don't seem to sell adventures, don't seem to have a sense of su- that selling adventures is something that's profitable for them. Well, the only adventure I think that has been published for GURPS Fourth Edition, as opposed to locations and adventure scenes mm-hmm. and things, is the one for Dungeon Fantasy. Which is certainly the most popular single mode of play for GURPS. Yeah, uh, and it's sold. It's sold all right, but it's it's not spectacular. I've got it, but I haven't yet finished reading it, so I, I really can't comment on whether it's called uh, Mirror of the Fire Demon. Mirror of the Fire Demon is one of the great campaigns, but we'll, we'll it, it's an it. adventure. It's not a campaign. Yeah, I think I recently wrote a um, as, I've, as I've waffled on about before. Um, an adventure for one of my long-running uh, GURPS groups of characters in which I deliberately set out with a plan seven stages, the seven voyages of Sir Alessandra Lacey as she crisscrossed the time streams and the, the universes to eventually come home and face down the big bad on her own world. And it was fun, but I was aware that I was limiting myself and structuring it deliberately towards a climax i'm it's not my normal means of operation i i prefer for themes and what's going to happen to emerge from what the players do in each individual session they tell me what it's about yeah um i'm as i mentioned i'm running the world war ii campaign which so far is keeping more or less pace with the progress of the actual war in real time I have some ideas about how that might end up, mm. and I certainly know what the bad guys are going to do if they're not stopped, but I'm not going to rely on either of those things actually coming to pass because players are going to get involved. Yeah, true. I, I think one, one of the reasons you don't get the same level of talk about uh, adventures is either there are too few of them, as with GURPS, or there are too many of them. Uh, if, if, if you're reasonably rich. You can buy Pathfinder Adventures and run them for years and years. They're writing them faster than people can play them. You notice that how, how little tempted I am? Well, 
uh, it, it's not a sort of game that particularly appeals to me. But the point, my point yeah, is that true. if if you are running a Pathfinder game, you you ha- you can have adventures. You can have more adventures than you can run. But because there are so many of them, if you're running into somebody else who's run a Pathfinder game, you may well not find um, that he's run any of the same ones you have. The, the, there's also uh, a large amount of stuff and inspiration, not necessarily run, runnable stuff, on the internet in logs and write-ups of people's old campaigns. Go on to RPGNet and say, I'm thinking of running um, an Ask Magica game set in the new world. Has anybody done it? And you'll get half a dozen replies and, and web searches will probably t- turn up more. There's a lot of reusable art in uh, in amateur all right non non professionally published stuff yeah that uh, that people are drawing on more and more well it's it's simply easier to find out about than it yeah. was and it's uh, an enormous flattery to any gm for somebody to say hey you did that i'd like to use that may i have your notes and it's a very flattering thing, and I wish I kept better notes so I could say yes to people. Yes, I, I usually say, well, really, what what happened is what there is. Yeah. <laughs> my, my notes mostly said, this is what the bad guys are up to. <laughs> yeah, I, I've never got anything that I, I've used back into publishable condition yet. I don't know if that answers your qu- question, Robert. We think, we seem to think, yes, these are fun, but we can see why they're not happening anymore. I, th- I think there's probably... A step forward in the art, waiting for some clever author who can come up with the new big campaign, new way of writing and publishing big campaigns. But we don't know what it is. If we do, you'll find out because we're very rich all of a sudden. <laughs> you, know, you know how to make a, a, a small fortune in role playing games. Mm. Start with a large fortune. <laughs> and with yeah, that I, joke, I, I think I think we move on. Something that we were thinking about last time but didn't have time for. What happens when, all of a sudden, two of your players don't turn up at the last minute? Um, no one feels like board games that night, but you don't want to write off the session completely. What sort of games can you do that are still role-playing, but don't need lots of preparation? You can pretty much pick them up as you go along. Right. Well, I have made a small collection of these uh, over recent years. They're all what are called indie uh, games. They are all small publishers, um, enthusiastic authors, and um, have acquired over the years a set of enthusiastic fans, most of them. They come in three groups. First of all, they're what I would call the easy pick-up but campaign. The games where you can start with no preparation and start into what's intended to be an ongoing campaign of stuff. You don't need to have anything prepared much beforehand. You can just drop it on your players' laps. And I've used these as fillers more often than I've used them as they're intended as full campaigns. These are games like, for example, Primetime Adventures, which is intended to um, mirror the creation of a TV series, or not necessarily a fantastical one, but um, a TV series with characters and um, and plot development and plot arcs. Specifically, I think, using the episode structure yeah. as, as a big it, part it, of the thing. It, it introduced, I think, the idea of using the tropes of creating a TV series of being in the writer's room uh, to gaming, and I've seen it um, used a lot more in other games, especially in things like Buffy the Vampire Slayer, to... Uh, uh, to emulate the uh, the way that one week you'll have focused on this character, one week you'll have a uh, focus on the next character. And it starts out with you all sitting down around the table and you are the writer's room for a proposed new series and you're going to pitch your ideas for a series and gradually define what the series is going to be about. This actually works beautifully and is a great stirrer up of the creative juices, at least it is in me, and uh, I thoroughly recommend it as an experience. There are also things like uh, Dungeon World and Apocalypse World, which are immense fun. The In both of them you have a basic world set up, 
One, the world has come to an end because of some terrible disaster which is not yet specified. You have a set of small booklets which are the player character sheets and they take you through the process of establishing uh, what your character is like. These are both Dungeon World and Apocalypse World are heavily classed games and there's only ever one of each class. So you have automatic niche projection yes. to some extent at least. And uh, the, in, the, in Dungeon World there's, there's one fighter, one cleric, one thief, one magic user. There may be NPCs who call themselves by that name but player characters are protected at least until we get to the complicated advanced levels when... Um, I think we established last time that if you have a replacement character, you can duplicate classes. Oh, that's true. And you can also start again when you've got as high as the system will allow you and move and start acquiring moves and uh, abilities from uh, other other classes. It's very, it's very cleverly done. The um, Apocalypse world has classes like the Driver, uh, the Gun Bunny, um, the Hard Holder, who controls one of the um, settlements out there in the desert lands where the radioactive mutant scorp scorpions are scattering around the walls. It, they're, they're, they're very enjoyable. They play on the tropes of the two different kinds of settings and there are others in the, in the sequence and they're easily done and I haven't tried yet. I tried once with Apocalypse World and it went sort of alright. I haven't tried yet running a full campaign of them, but I suspect it would be enormous fun. But I also suspect that the lack of depth of it would get annoy my players who are used to something more complex. Lack of mechanical depth, I, I, was, I should say. As I was saying, I, I'm going to say, as an indie game, they're going to be fairly mechanics light as, as a general tendency. Yeah. So, certainly, Primetime Adventures, I seem to remember, you, you basically have doing stuff abilities that run from about one to three. And you have uh, that, that's most of it. And you have cards. It uses cards, and I think chips um, for, uh, for for bonuses. Oh, and there's a very lovely mechanic in which um, the in which the players get to reward other players for doing things that are cool, and this is called fan mail. On the other hand, what you don't have is a half-page skill list. Uh, no. Uh, nor nor, nor even nor a chapter about about combat, or nor nor anything. One other in this group I'd like to mention is uh, In a Wicked Age. Now, this is set in a sort of um, pseudo um, Near Eastern, Middle Eastern setting, maybe um, maybe Earl of the Coldies or something equally uh, prehistoric. And in each session, you start the session by finding out what the elements of the story are. All right, hang on. Roger, take out that pack of cards in front of you. Give it a shuffle. And you consult what are called uh, one of the oracles. And the oracles, first of all, somebody chooses, and it might as well be you, Roger, because you're the only one here, which category of oracle to consult. There are blood and sex, the unquiet past, and god kings of war. I think that's, yeah, those three. Well, which one would you like, my lord, to consult for this? Let's just try the god kings of war. Fair enough. In that case, uh, give me three cards. Two of clubs, jack of clubs, ace of spades. All right. The two of clubs is an army scryer commanding six sharp-fanged gaunts. The jack of clubs, a powerful general's death of her wounds, which will shatter her, shatter her army into factions. The ace of spades, the very first time that a certain young soldier, impressed against his ch choice and wanting nothing more than to return to his home, has killed. And that's the setup situation. So all, all of these are, thing, are themes that one would aim to bring into the game well, in some way. Well, no, no. These are things that this is the setup at, at the start at the start of, of the game. Those elements are, are all there. Right. The players then choose which of the people mentioned or implied in the um, in the descriptions they want to be. You you could choose to be the dying general if you're seriously masochistic and want to be out of there or you could be one of the dying general's um, lieutenants who's possibly going to be leading a faction yeah or you, or you could be the seer or you could be one of the gaunts or you could be the young boy and the and the young boy could just have killed the general um in in in, in battle 
And once those decided and described in terms of game mechanics, then the GM has the horrible uh, task of sketching out, more likely, it's that merciful, the uh, the NPCs, and then you turn to one of the players and say, well, this is where you are, what do you do next? It's The setup is brilliant, and it's very evocative. There are um, hacks for other settings, which... I haven't seen, but which could work just as well. The problem I have is with the um, is with the the resolution system here. It is a problem. It assumes, as many story focused games do, there are only two sides to um, a resolution, and you know what it is going in. So basically, your your framing conflict is as. Does A get what he wants, or does B get what he wants? Yeah, and I, I don't find that that simple, and w- especially when there are more th- there are more than A and B in the scene, and C and D probably have aim- aims of their own, which may not relate to A and B's theme at all. I find the mechanics of the game get a little squirrely. I have I found a flowchart, for goodness' sake, which aims to explain. Um, What's going on, and it still didn't help me. But that that it is. I've had some very good sessions out of it with good and forgiving players who are willing to take the inspiration of it and play and run with it. But it, I can't. It give sounds it to me as if it's much closer to actual collaborative story writing or storytelling, at least. Yeah, I I I th- I think so, but it still has the element of conflict built into it. And I think it rides a little awkwardly with it at times. All right, moving on. What did I say the second category was? Uh, all right, games which will only ever do one thing. They're only ever t- intended to do one thing. And that's uh, my exemplar here. is Montsegur 1244. This is a game in which you get to play uh, a Cathar heretic at the fall of their last citadel, Montsegur, in 1244. And you get to worry throughout the game about whether you're going to stay true to your faith and burn at the stake, or whether you're going to recant and uh, be accepted back into into the Catholic Church, and the incidents that happen around that. And this is a little specialised, I find. Some of them um, do things... uh, very well, very brilliant. There's things like the Mountain Witch, in which you play uh, Ronin going after the aforementioned uh, Mountain Witch and probably having some sort of squirrely secret in your background tied into the Mountain Witch. There's um, uh, Great Ranks. You are child soldiers in Warsaw in, I think, late 44, anyway, just before the Soviets come into the city. Yeah. And uh, what was the other one? Oh, Lady Blackbird, in which you are the crew of a sort of a uh, sort of spaceship, airship in a very um, odd little setting, and you are—you've just been captured by the Imperial forces, and uh, there's a fugitive noblewoman on board, and the characters are even fixed right from the, right from the start. But that doesn't make it any less different every time it's played. So I think broadly, one would say you've you've got at the very least scenario and setting out rules, mm. all integrated with each other in a yeah. single volume. I have played less of these. I think some players will probably kick against the pricks with this sort of thing. But it's it, if it's a fun setting and if it's something that you can ju- just take and throw throw at them, then I think that this can be fun. The third group, I would describe those that are only going to do one thing, but they're relatively flexible in what they do. They are not as fixed and focused as the second group, but they're not intended for ongoing play. So you're telling one closed story. You're telling one closed story in a specific genre, usually, but you can't quite tell what that story is going to be before you sit down. King and ruler of this group is Fiasco by Jason Morningstar. It's a game intended to reflect the reality of uh, Cohen Brothers movies. It says on the back, it's about people with powerful ambition and poor impulse control. Cocaine will probably be involved. Also shotguns. Also a suitcase full of money, either fake or stolen. I'm not particularly a fan of the films, but I think this is reasonably close to what one might call Florida weird subgenre 
uh, books by Carl Hyas and Tim Dorsey. It's many of them are mundane um, settings, though there are um, there are weird uh, playbooks. They're called um, both the main book and the companion uh, come with the pre-generated uh, uh, playbooks, and there's a a shed load of things which are available for free from the uh, publisher's website, including one for a D&D-ish universe in which you are the adventurers coming into town with your loot and you're about to fall out about how you divide it. And once, one which I had great fun with in which you are the um, you are people in uh, Elizabethan London about uh, the, the time that Shakespeare was writing his great tragedies. Uh, for another historical setting, you're on board the Titanic. There's one thing that I find a bit odd about this. Broadly speaking, it, it you, you define your characters primarily by their relationships to other people. That's yeah, fair enough. Uh, you start out with it by run, rolling dice and choosing against a table. The person to your left may be your lover, the person to your right may be your partner in crime. And this will form a ring of relationships around the uh, yeah. group. During the game, you have various conflicts it, it is framed in terms of i'm i'm deciding what i want to get out of this scene when it's my turn to choose the scene and broadly speaking that there is you, the, the rest of the players decide whether you have actually got it or not i actually know it's not quite like that you can either choose to frame you either choose to frame the scene which is that one or you choose to resolve how the scene plays out for you and then somebody else gets to frame it. And then somebody else gets to frame it. But I, I, either way, you have at the end of this a binary decision, basically, did that scene work out well for you or not? Yeah. And you you accrue dice uh, as a way of keeping score. White dice for good, black dice for bad. All of which is perfectly reasonable. The thing that I find odd is that your overall level of success at the end of the thing is largely determined by your balance of one sort of die over the other. Now, if everything's worked out well for you, that's great. Mm. But you do get the situation where everything's worked out badly for you. Um, uh, everybody's been kicking you to the curb and spitting on you, but you end up with a suitcase full of money. And it's a genre thing. With the, I think you'll find that the way it works is you roll both pools of dice, white and black, and subtract the, the lower from the higher. Yeah, and, and the further you are from zero, the better. Yeah. If you've had an average sort of game, something going well, something going badly, you're going to end up deep, deep in the doo-doo. Whereas if you're, 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 you've gone to either extreme, things have gone brilliantly well or things have gone brilliantly badly, then you might just come out covered with glory. Yeah, I think, I think the difficulty I have with this is just trying to make that connection from everything has been going badly for me and, oh, it suddenly worked perfectly. It feels like something that doesn't really flow from what's gone before. Uh, I, th I think it's a convention of, of the genre which he which yep. he's, try he's trying to 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 encourage, because at the last frame of of that sort that sort of movie, the poor loser who has uh, has suffered all the way through has finally roll, uh, rolled rolled um, uh, uh, over his tormentor, crying revenge, revenge. <laughs> I also... in, in, in any case, it, it is a, it's telling a specific sort of genre, but in, in wildly differing settings, and, and yeah. it does a pretty good job of that. Um, in more specific setting, uh, I have a thing called Forsooth, which is uh, a weird thing in which you attempt to improvise uh, one of Shakespeare's lost plays. I've only done it once, and it didn't work out terribly well, but it is such a, a brilliant idea, and is, is so nicely... And realised that I want to try it again and and get the damn thing to work. Yeah, uh, and it, uh, and speaking uh, speaking for for soothly is something I take some delight in, my lord. And thus I would encourage those um, amongst our listeners, gentle of education and 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 of birth, to give this one a try. And one last mention in this middle group, in this last group, is microscope. Oh, not one last mention. There is one more to come. What I'd like to mention is microscope. It's a game in which you are improvising large stretches of history, of background um, to a particular world. You, as with um, primetime adventures, you pitch around the table what you'd like to talk about: the rise and fall of the galactic empire, why magic is returning to the world, whatever. And you pitch the beginning and the end 
and then you spend the game working out the details and the historical episodes that took place, pinning down little little incidents or describing vast swathes of history. And you end up with a table covered with sticky sticky notes mm. and lots of things scribbled out. Again, as with Primetime and Adventures, it is a great giver of inspiration. I didn't use any of the things I did at the last StabCon when I ran this as raw materials for my uh, for my recent GURPS Renaissance game. But it, a lot of the feel went into it and uh, it, it helped spark. And finally, I would like to uh, mention a game which I have great sympathy before because the one time I played it, I got to play the French chef. And any game in which I get to use an outrageous French accent is, in my opinion, a very good game. This is A, a Taste for Murder uh, by uh, Graham Wolsey. This is a game which attempts to emulate the uh, 1930s country house murder mystery. It's a game in which you play the um, family members, guests and staff um, in a in a country residence of the upper classes. And the first half of the game, uh, you gather to, uh, together and people go off in, in pairs and start chatting about what has been going on and their personal agendas and what they, what they want out of, out of things and their interrelationships are gradually built up, built up. Then, halfway through, everybody puts the name of one of the characters into a hat and one of the pieces of paper is drawn out and that character is murdered and found dead horrendously. The player of that character then comes back as the detective in the second half and gradually investigates what's going on and fixes down the details and sorts out what's really going on until there are just two suspects left and then they, he gathers them together in the library and uh, resolves what really happened. Aha! And uh, when I got to play the French chef, I was dragged off saying, yes, yes, I killed him, I killed him. He was a swine, I tell you. And this is, <laughs> about the times I played this, it's been great fun, and I, I, <laughs> I do recommend it. So I, I think that's a br brief run through um, low preparation games. And, um, we, uh, and I'm, I'm going to recommend just about all of them, with some caveats uh, for people who uh, find themselves are caught short at uh, the game table, so to speak. I've played very few of them, but I've enjoyed the ones I have, and I will look into them more. And now a new segment, uh, which we're going to call Counterfactuals to Order. We are both uh, great admirers of Robin Law's uh, Ken Heights, uh, Ken and Robin talk about stuff. And one of the... Uh, one of the sections there is called uh, Ken's Time Machine, in which he is asked by readers and by his uh, co-host go back in time and uh, fix various events. And we're not quite, we don't have the budget for our own time machine. We thought we'd take a slightly different approach. If you want a world in which something is different, how can that be achieved without alien space bats that make everybody act weird? Or time machines, for that matter. Indeed. My, I'm going to start by throwing one at Roger. I have a romantic attachment, which is odd because they, they were bright and repulsive, not wrong and romantic, for the uh, for the Roundhead side in the English Civil War. For and I have a long term ambition to um, create a world in which the Commonwealth um, not only survives but flourishes and establishes a parliamentary democracy of some sort, um, rather than the, the military dictatorship come totally unsuccessful theocracy of, of the Cromwell. Um, I'm moved romantically by the fact that the Putney debates, when the army got the uh, upper classes together and said, look, we've been fighting this war, what's in it for us in the last point? And they started to debate about fundamentals of government and what they should and shouldn't be doing. How to build a perfect society. How to build a, how to build a perfect society, which you would have thought somebody would have talked about before then, but they were probably doing it in the army barracks. 
they started to discuss this and then the king went and betrayed everybody again and the whole matter never never went anywhere and we got as i say a combination military dictatorship and wildly unsuccessful theocracy my problem with this having a different outcome is that all the theory all the thinking about this by Locke and other people later on happened as a consequence of english civil war and all the theory that went into the american revolution comes out of this and the later glorious so-called revolution of 1688 so how could we make this turn out better well, hmm. it would probably help to have a less stupid king. I almost yeah, everything yeah, if you, if if you get less stupid. If king. you take King Charles out, you don't have the revolution in the first place. You've got to have the stupid king. He's like the he's like the gristle in the middle, middle of the pearl. He's got to be yes, there. Yes, but he doesn't have to be that stupid. After the war was over, hmm. the the winners were trying desperately to find find a a way, a legal fiction, or something, a way of sending him into exile somewhere where he wouldn't be a problem anymore. Uh huh. Like Socrates, he wouldn't cooperate. He was in prison, knowing that his correspondence was being read. He wrote a letter to the King of Spain saying, more or less, please come and invade. I will be ha I will happily be your public monarch and turn England over to Roman Catholicism. Not in so many words, but probably yes. Stupid. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but but he but he's 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 just a distraction at this point. He's as you say, he's he's in jail. It was writing that letter. Um, that 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 uh, that caused the breakup of the of the of the Putney debates. But the problem is, they don't have any context there. They don't. Uh, some of them are, are true radicals. The 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 levellers who didn't call themselves that, and the diggers who didn't call themselves that either. And they want some sort of total revolution, which probably isn't going to work either. Well, how about letting them lose the war? What I'm thinking here is that quite quite a lot of the surviving cavaliers. Yeah. Went off and and um, went off to the colonies, and tried yeah. to build their perfect society there. Go on. It wasn't a terribly good perfect society, um, but I, I'm wondering whether perhaps. Uh, Hang on. Did you mean cavaliers or roundheads in that last sentence? I'm surviving cavaliers, the the, one, the ones who who had been had, had not been executed, yeah, had not been killed on the field of battle, but didn't really want to be hanging around in England either. Well, quite, yeah, and in in much the same way that the. Um, the the surviving uh, uh, Jacobites would a few a generation or two later. Oh, and the, and the Roundheads once uh, once yep. Charles II was back on the throne. But I, I'm wondering whether if if you can get the Roundheads to go en masse slightly earlier, they they might then have a better go at building a society in in a relatively unsettled area. They were already trying, um, but the trouble is the 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 Roundheads were Puritans. Only a very few of them, Oliver Cromwell, to his credit, was starting to think about religious toleration. Religious toleration in what was to become the United States was a pretty damn heretical position. Uh, well, yes, then. a lot of the people who were, who were the early settlers were going there specifically so that they wouldn't have to put up with it. Uh, yeah, so that they could persecute the people they felt like persecuting. Yeah, it's the natural order of things. Well, quite. Yeah, all right, so you're saying let the roundheads lose... I think that's just going to lead to um, more um, theocracy, because God clearly is punishing his people. The, the problem, I think, with le letting the, le let us say, the parliamentarian side as a whole yeah. do anything is that there isn't really a parliamentarian side as a whole. You, you've, you've got yeah. se se very senior politicians who are entirely happy with the old state of affairs, except they don't want this particular king in charge of it. Yeah. And you've got the levellers, and they are, they are simply not going to agree on anything other than we want to get rid of the king. So, yeah. ha so can can one get at the fa the faction infighting at that point? I don't know. The thing is, there is no theory. There is no. I don't know enough about um, the emergent studies of Greek and Roman political theory. I've got a feeling most of Aristotle's stuff on the constitutions of ancient Greece, which he did, though he was an oligarch um, and favor in favour like Margaret Thatcher of people like us being in charge, um, he did a set of descriptions of the various um, uh, um, constitutions of the Greek city-states, which is one of the great sources. And I've got a feeling that wasn't there yet. And there's even the Republic simply assumes a slave class to do all the work, and it's yeah. all very well if you can do that. Uh, well, most 
most of the uh, the Greek Greeks, including Aristotle, were were perfectly happy with uh, with the submission of the of the few to the many. The idea that there might be a balance of power between the few and the many emerges as a consequence of this war. What I think is needed is somebody to start thinking about these things when they aren't. Um... When's Machiavelli? I think he's written by this point. Yeah, I'm sure you have. Maybe we could get Machiavelli to come to England and write a book about England. And how it's all different from, from the Italian system. Yeah. Still, still wrong, of course, because he's Machiavelli. But... But, but, oh, actually, there's a thought. Machiavelli, the political thinker, writing about... He, he wrote um, not just The Prince, though that's what he's famous for, but his comments on the early Roman histories of Livy are basically where he says, look, republics are a really good idea of, uh, for a certain value of republic, for an Italian uh, Renaissance value of republic. Perhaps if he saw England in action, even the fairly crippled parliaments of the Tudor period, he might be impressed. You never know. I think uh, mo most of the Tudors would have matched his, his description of the tyrannical prince. But uh, Well, yeah, but... Uh, uh, an another approach that I, I think might produce some interesting changes is ma make the war worse. And, and not oh, come on. How could you make it? How much worse? At the start of it, you could people were going up in the street and saying, are you for Parliament, King, or are you for Parliament, beating to death people who are giving the wrong answer? You can make it worse by bringing it in on the continental model. Oh, and well. we have at least one person who, in, in there, Rupert of the Rhine, who had fought wars on the continental model and knew exactly what was involved. And the answer is, when, when you have an enemy city, you sack it. And then yeah. it's not a problem anymore. Yeah, yeah. I think his uncle would have objected to that. Oh, he did. Practically, but, but he it, wants the city intact for after. Yes, but so, so, that, so they did in, in proto-Germany. You can always rebuild it with more loyal subjects. So the, the the concept was there. There were people there who were familiar with it. If that starts to happen, you might get a stronger revulsion afterwards mm. and, and a bit more determination, let, let us actually try to solve our problems by some other means, because really we can't survive an old war like that. Actually, if that... Perhaps if Charles dies early in the war and his son is still... Quite young at this point. I don't. I think he's 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 capable of inheriting at the. He's old enough to inherit at this point, but he's yeah. still young and he's still fairly inexperienced. If Charles dies at the start, towards the start, and and Rupert gets to gets to do what he wanted to, and wage absolute war. That that would do. That would do, that might that would I, I, either that or simply shuffle the order of people who talked to Charles so that Rupert talked to him last and got agreement and charged off before I, I, he could well, stop. No, 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 no. I'm going to be fair, to Charles the First. God knows it's hard, but let me be fair to Charles the <laughs> First. He wanted to be a good king. He was just incredibly bad at it. Um, I but I think with Charles dead and Rupert given his head, you could get a general revolt against the idea of aristocracy. Ooh. Because what do the aristocrats give us? They give us cities in flames. It's all very well um, uh, talking about uh, remember uh, the Alamo becomes remember High Wycombe, perhaps. Mm. Oh, hey, High Wycombe was halfway between London uh, and Oxford, between the capitals of the, of the two sides. You, uh, if it proved to be recalcitrant or changed sides once too often, I can see Rupert coming in with fire and sword. Lots of wood turner shops in Wycombe, very flammable. Yeah. Plenty of uh, plenty of, uh, of forests up on the hills in those days. Yeah, I can see I can see the smoke being seen from uh, from all over the parties. Uh, yeah, I think uh, all right. Uh, the massacre of High Wycombe <laughs> brings but, but, it, but it's not going to be just that, and that that, yeah. that that could be yes. This particular person did this particular horrible thing. What 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 I think we then see is some some of the more rabid parliamentarians saying, "Well, hell, he started it." Yeah, and it's a very effective way of stopping a city rising up behind us. Ooh, what, what, I, I mentioned my my romantic attachment attachment to the to the Mounders, didn't I? Well, what what it it, it it's it causes a faction split. This is what I think. Yeah, R rather than the frankly fairly arbitrary arrangement of of members of parliament and nobles on mm. one side or the other, you you start to switch switch things round a bit 
so that you get the people who are prepared to burn cities and the people who aren't. Yes. Well, actually, Roger, I think you have solved my problem. It's a really disgusting solution, but I think it might work. There are very few problems that cannot be solved by killing 97% of the human race. How would it improve my sex life? <laughs> Just pick the right 97%. I see. Roger, in this solution, you're in the 97%. <laughs> well, if you want history solving, rearranging, or otherwise um, commenting upon, please get in touch with us. And please do not send us requests about your sex life, because, um, as you can tell, we're not good at that. We might just read them out on the show. Yeah, please, don't be humiliated on the podcast. This has been... Improvised Radio Theatre. With us. With me, Michael Keel, and him, Roger Bell West. And we hope to see you again next month. Get in touch with us at podcast at techaily.ly. Thank you.